Section 10 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 7. The Germans in Gaul. The Franks and Clovis. Part 1. About A.D. 241 or 242, the Sixth Roman Legion, commanded by Aurelian, at that time military tribune, and thirty years later emperor, had just finished a campaign on the Rhine, undertaken for the purpose of driving the Germans from Gaul, and was preparing for Eastern service, to make war on the Persians. The soldiers sang, We have slain a thousand Franks and a thousand Sarmatians. We want a thousand, thousand, thousand Persians. That was apparently a popular burden at the time. At Rome and in Gaul, the children sang as they danced. We have cut off the heads of a thousand, 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 thousand. One man hath cut off the heads of a thousand, 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 thousand. May he live a thousand, thousand years, he who hath slain a thousand, thousand. Nobody hath so much of wine as he hath of blood poured out. Aurelian, the hero of these ditties, was indeed much given to the pouring out of blood, for at the approach of a fresh war he wrote to the Senate, I marvel, conscript fathers, that ye have so much misgiving about opening the Sibylline books, as if you were deliberating in an assembly of Christians, and not in the temple of all the gods. Let inquiry be made of the sacred books, and let celebration take place of the ceremonies that ought to be fulfilled. Far from refusing, I offer with zeal to satisfy all expenditure required, with captives of every nationality, victims of royal rank. It is no shame to conquer with the aid of the gods. It is thus that our ancestors began and ended many a war. Human sacrifices, then, were not yet foreign to pagan festivals, and probably the blood of more than one Frankish captive on that occasion flowed in the temple of all the gods. It is the first time the name of Franks appears in history, and it indicated no particular single people, but a confederation of Germanic peoplets, settled or roving on the right bank of the Rhine, from the main to the ocean. The number and the names of the tribes united in this confederation are uncertain. A chart of the Roman Empire, prepared apparently at the end of the fourth century, in the reign of the Emperor Honorius, which chart, called Tabula Putingeri, was found amongst the ancient manuscripts collected by Conrad Putinger, a learned German philosopher, in the fifteenth century, bears over a large territory on the right bank of the Rhine, the word Francia, and the following enumeration. The Chaucians, the Ampsarians, the Cheriscans, and the Chamevians, who are also called Franks. And to these tribes diverse chroniclers added several others, the Atorians, the Bructarians, the Catians, and the Sicambrians. Whatever may have been the specific names of these peoplets, they were all of German race, called themselves Franks, that is, free men, and made, sometimes separately, sometimes collectively, continued incursions into Gaul, especially Belgica and the northern portions of Lyonnais, at one time plundering and ravaging, at another occupying forcibly, or demanding of the Roman emperors lands whereon to settle. From the middle of the third to the beginning of the fifth century, the history of the Western Empire presents an almost uninterrupted series of these invasions on the part of the Franks, together with the different relationships established between them and the imperial government. 
At one time whole tribes settled on Roman soil, submitted to the emperors, entered their service, and fought for them, even against their own German compatriots. At another, isolated individuals, such and such warriors of German race, put themselves at the command of the emperors, and became of importance. At the middle of the third century, the emperor Valerian, on committing a command to Aurelian, wrote, Thou wilt have with thee Hartmund, Haldgast, Hildemund, and Cariovisgis. Some Frankish tribes allied themselves more or less fleetingly with the imperial government, at the same time that they preserved their independence. Others pursued, throughout the empire, their life of incursion and adventure. From A.D. 260 to 268, under the reign of Gallienus, a band of Franks threw itself upon Gaul, scoured it from north-east to south-east, plundering and devastating on its way. Then it passed from Aquitania into Spain, took and burned Tarragona, gained possession of certain vessels, sailed away, and disappeared in Africa, after having wandered about for twelve years at its own will and pleasure. There was no lack of valiant emperors, precarious and ephemeral as their power may have been, to defend the empire, and especially Gaul, against those enemies, themselves ephemeral, but forever recurring, Decius, Valerian, Gallienus, Claudius Gothicus, Aurelian, and Probus gallantly withstood these repeated attacks of German hordes. Sometimes they flattered themselves that they had gained a definitive victory, and then the old Roman pride exhibited itself in their patriotic confidence. In about A.D. 278, the Emperor Probus, after gaining several victories in Gaul over the Franks, wrote to the Senate, I render thanks to the immortal gods, conscript fathers, for that they have confirmed your judgment as regards me. Germany is subdued throughout its whole extent. Nine kings of different nations have come and cast themselves at my feet, or rather at yours, as suppliants, with their foreheads in the dust. Already all those barbarians are tilling for you, sowing for you, and fighting for you against the most distant nations. Order ye therefore, according to your custom, prayers of thanksgiving, for we have slain four thousand of the enemy. We have had offered to us sixteen thousand men ready armed, and we have wrested from the enemy the seventy most important towns. The Gauls, in fact, are completely delivered. The crowns offered to me by all cities of Gaul I have submitted, conscript fathers, to your grace. Dedicate ye them with your own hands to Jupiter, all bountiful, all powerful, and to the other immortal gods and goddesses. All the booty is retaken, and, further, we have made fresh captures, more considerable than our first losses. The fields of Gaul are tilled by the oxen of the barbarians, and German teams bend their necks in slavery to our husbandmen. Diverse nations raise cattle for our consumption, and horses to remount our cavalry. Our stores are full of the corn of the barbarians. In one word, we have left to the vanquished naught but the soil. All their other possessions are ours. We had at first thought it necessary, conscript fathers, to appoint a new governor of Germany, but we have put off this measure to the time when our ambition shall be more completely satisfied, which will be, as it seems to us, when it shall have pleased divine providence to increase and multiply the forces of our armies. Probus had good reason to wish that divine providence might be pleased to increase the forces of the Roman armies, for even after his victories, exaggerated as they probably were, they did not suffice for their task, and it was not long before the vanquished recommenced war. He had dispersed over the territory of the empire the majority of the prisoners he had taken. A band of Franks, who had been transported and established as a military colony on the European shore of the Black Sea, 
could not make up their minds to remain there. They obtained possession of some vessels, traversed the Propontis, the Hellespont, and the Archipelago, ravaged the coasts of Greece, Asia Minor, and Africa, plundered Syracuse, scoured the whole of the Mediterranean, entered the ocean by the Straits of Gibraltar, and making their way up again along the coasts of Gaul, arrived at last at the mouths of the Rhine, where they once more found themselves at home amongst the vines which Probus, in his victorious progress, had been the first to have planted, and with probably their old taste for adventure and plunder. After the commencement of the fifth century, from A.D. 406 to 409, it was no longer by incursions limited to certain points, and sometimes repelled with success, that the Germans harassed the Roman provinces. A veritable deluge of diverse nations, forced one upon another, from Asia into Europe, by wars and migration in mass, inundated the empire and gave the decisive signal for its fall. St. Jerome did not exaggerate when he wrote to Aricia, Nations, countless in number and exceeding fierce, have occupied all the Gauls, Quadians, Vandals, Sarmatians, Alans, Gepidians, Herulians, Saxons, Burgundians, Alemanians, Pannonians, and even Assyrians have laid waste all that there is between the Alps and the Pyrenees, the ocean and the Rhine. Sad destiny of the commonwealth! Mayence, once a noble city, hath been taken and destroyed. Thousands of men were slaughtered in the church. Worms hath fallen after a long siege. The inhabitants of Rheims, a powerful city, and those of Amiens, Arras, Terhune, at the extremity of Gaul, Tournay, Spears, and Strasbourg, have been carried away into Germany. All hath been ravaged in Aquitania, Novum Populania, Lyonnais, and Narbonnes. The towns, save a few, are dispeopled. The sword pursueth them abroad, and famine at home. I cannot speak without tears of Toulouse. If she be not reduced to equal ruin, it is to the merits of her holy bishop Exuperus that she oweth it. Then took place throughout the Roman Empire, in the East as well as in the West, in Asia and Africa as well as in Europe, the last grand struggle between the Roman armies and the barbaric nations. Armies is the proper term, for to tell the truth, there was no longer a Roman nation, and very seldom a Roman emperor with some little capacity for government or war. The long continuance of despotism and slavery had enervated equally the ruling powers and the people. Everything depended on the soldiers and their generals. It was in Gaul that the struggle was most obstinate, and most promptly brought to a decisive issue, and the confusion there was as great as the obstinacy. Barbaric peoplets served in the ranks, and barbaric leaders held the command of the Roman armies. Stilijo was a Goth, Arbogastes and Melobodes were Franks, Rissimer was a Suvian. The Roman generals, Bonifacius, Aetius, Egedius, Siagrius, at one time fought the barbarians, at another negotiated with such and such of them, either to entice them to take service against other barbarians, or to promote the objects of personal ambition. For the Roman generals also, under the titles of patrician, consul, or proconsul, aspired to and attained a sort of political independence, and contributed to the dismemberment of the empire in the very act of defending it. No later than A.D. 412, two German nations, the Visigoths and the Burgundians, took their stand definitively in Gaul, and founded there two new kingdoms. The Visigoths, under their kings Atulf and Walia, in Aquitania and Narbonnes, the Burgundians, under their kings Gwendicher and Gundiac, in Lyonnais, from the southern point of Alsatia right into the province, 
along the two banks of the Saone and the left bank of the Rhone, and also in Switzerland. In 451 the arrival in Gaul of the Huns and their king Attila, already famous, both king and nation, for their wild habits, their fierce valour, and their successes against the Eastern Empire, gravely complicated the situation. The common interest of resistance against the most barbarous of barbarians, and the renown and energy of Aetius, united for the moment the old and new masters of Gaul, Romans, Gauls, Visigoths, Burgundians, Franks, Alans, Saxons, and Britons, formed the army led by Aetius against that of Attila, who also had in his ranks Goths, Burgundians, Gepedians, Alans, and beyond Rhine Franks, gathered together and enlisted on his road. It was a chaos and a conflict of barbarians, of every name and race, disputing one with another, pell-mell, the remnants of the Roman Empire torn asunder and in dissolution. Attila had already arrived before Orléans, and was laying siege to it. The bishop, St. Ananias, sustained a while the courage of the besieged, by promising them aid from Aetius and his allies. The aid was slow to come, and the bishop sent to Aetius a message, If thou be not here this very day, my son, it will be too late. Still Aetius came not. The people of Orléans determined to surrender, the gates flew open, the Huns entered, the plundering began without much disorder, Wagons were stationed to receive the booty as it was taken from the houses, and the captives, arranged in groups, were divided by lot between the victorious chieftains. Suddenly a shout re-echoed through the streets. It was Aetius, Theodoric, and Thorismund, his son, who were coming with the eagles of the Roman legions and with the banners of the Visigoths. A fight took place between them and the Huns, at first on the banks of the Loire, and then in the streets of the city. The people of Orléans joined their liberators, the danger was great for the Huns, and Attila ordered a retreat. It was the 14th of June, 451, and that day was for a long while celebrated in the Church of Orléans, as the date of a signal deliverance. The Huns retired towards Champagne, which they had already crossed at their coming into Gaul, and when they were before Troyes, the bishop, St. Lupus, repaired to Attila's camp, and besought him to spare a defenceless city, which had neither walls nor garrison. "'So be it,' answered Attila, "'but thou shalt come with me and see the Rhine. I promise then to send thee back again.' With mingled prudence and superstition, the barbarian meant to keep the holy man as a hostage. The Huns arrived at the plain, hard by Chalons-sur-Marne. Aetius and all his allies had followed them, and Attila, perceiving that a battle was inevitable, halted in a position for delivering it. The Gothic historian Jornandes says that he consulted his priests, who answered that the Huns would be beaten, but that the general of the enemy would fall in the fight. In this prophecy Attila saw predicted the death of Aetius, his most formidable enemy, and the struggle commenced. There is no precise information about the date, but it was, says Jornandes, a battle which for atrocity, multitude, horror, and stubbornness has not the like in the records of antiquity. Historians vary in their exaggerations of the numbers engaged and killed. According to some, three hundred thousand, according to others, one hundred and sixty-two thousand were left on the field of battle. Theodoric, king of the Visigoths, was killed. Some chroniclers name Morovis as king of the Franks, settled in Belgica, near Tongres, who formed a part of the army of Aetius. They even attribute to him a brilliant attack made on the eve of the battle, upon the Gepidians, allies of the Huns, when ninety thousand men fell, according to some, and only fifteen thousand, according to others. The numbers are purely imaginary, and even the fact is doubtful. 
However, the Battle of Chalons drove the Huns out of Gaul, and was the last victory in Gaul, gained still in the name of the Roman Empire, but in reality for the advantage of the German nations which had already conquered it. Twenty-four years afterwards the very name of Roman Empire disappeared with Augustulus, the last of the emperors of the West. Thirty years after the Battle of Chalons, the Franks settled in Gaul were not yet united as one nation. Several tribes with this name, independent one of another, were planted between the Rhine and the Somme. There were some in the environs of Cologne, Calais, Cambrai, even beyond the Seine and as far as Le Mans, on the confines of the Britons. This is one of the reason of the confusion that prevails in the ancient chronicles about the chieftains or kings of these tribes, their names and dates, and the extent and site of their possessions. Faramond, Clodion, Merovius, and Childeric cannot be considered as kings of France, and placed at the beginning of her history. If they are met in connection with historical facts, fabulous legends or fanciful traditions are mingled with them. Priam appears as a predecessor of Faramond, Clodion, who passes for having been the first to bear and transmit to the Frankish kings the title of long-haired, is represented as the son, at one time of Faramond, at another of a chieftain named Theodemer. Romantic adventures, spoiled by geographical mistakes, adorn the life of Childric. All that can be distinctly affirmed is, that from A.D. 450 to 480, the two principal Frankish tribes were those of Salian Franks and the Rupurian Franks, settled, the latter in the east of Belgica, on the banks of the Moselle and the Rhine, the former towards the west, between the Meuse, the Ocean, and the Somme. Merovius, whose name was perpetuated in his line, was one of the principal chieftains of the Salian Franks, and his son Childeric, who resided at Tournay, where his tomb was discovered in 1655, was the father of Clovis, who succeeded him in 481, and with whom really commenced the kingdom and history of France. Clovis was fifteen or sixteen years old when he became king of the Salian Franks of Tournay. Five years afterwards his ruling passion, ambition, exhibited itself, together with that mixture of boldness and craft which was to characterize his whole life. He had two neighbors, one hostile to the Franks, the Roman patrician Sigrius, who was left master at Soissons after the death of his father Agedius, and whom Gregory of Tours calls King of the Romans, the other, a Salian Frankish chieftain, just as Clovis was, and related to him, Ragnacare, who was settled at Cambrai. Clovis induced Ragnacare to join him in a campaign against Siagrius. They fought, and Siagrius was driven to take refuge in southern Gaul with Alaric, king of the Visigoths. Clovis, not content with taking possession of Soissons, and anxious to prevent any troublesome return, demanded of Alaric to send Siagrius back to him, threatening war if the request were refused. The Goth, less bellicose than the Frank, delivered up Siagrius to the envoys of Clovis, who immediately had him secretly put to death, settled himself at Soissons, and from thence set on foot, in the country between the Asni and the Loire, plundering and subjugating expeditions which speedily increased his domains and his wealth, and extended far and wide his fame as well as his ambition. The Franks who accompanied him were not long before they also felt the growth of his power. Like him they were pagans, and the treasures of the Christian churches counted for a great deal in the booty they had to divide. On one of their expeditions they had taken in the church of Rem, amongst other things, a vase of marvellous size and beauty. The bishop of Rem, St. Remy, was not quite a stranger to Clovis. Some years before, when he had heard that the son of Childeric had become king of the Franks of Tournay, 
he had written to congratulate him. "'We are informed,' said he, "'that thou hast undertaken the conduct of affairs. It is no marvel that thou beginnest to be what thy fathers ever were.' And, whilst taking care to put himself on good terms with the young pagan chieftain, the bishop added to his felicitations some pious Christian counsel, without letting any attempt at conversion be mixed up with his moral exhortations. The bishop, informed of the removal of the vase, sent to Clovis a messenger begging the return, if not of all his church's ornaments, at any rate of that. "'Follow us as far as Soissons,' said Clovis to the messenger. "'It is there the partition is to take place of what we have captured. When the lot shall have given me the vase, I will do what the bishop demands.' When Soissons was reached, and all the booty had been placed in the midst of the host, the king said, "'Valiant warriors, I pray you not to refuse me, over and above my share, this vase here.' At these words of the king, those who were of sound mind amongst the assembly answered, "'Glorious king, everything we see here is thine, and we ourselves are submissive to thy commands. Do thou as seemeth good to thee, for there is none that can resist thy power.' When they had spoken thus, a certain Frank, light-minded, jealous, and vain, cried out aloud as he struck the vase with his battle-axe, Thou shalt have naught of all this save what the lot shall truly give thee. At these words all were astounded, but the king bore the insult with sweet patience, and accepting the vase, he gave it to the messenger, hiding his wound in the recesses of his heart. At the end of a year he ordered all his hosts to assemble fully equipped at the march parade, to have their arms inspected. After passing in review all the other warriors, he came to him who had struck the vase. None, said he, hath brought hither arms so ill-kept as thine, nor lance, nor sword, nor battle-axe are in condition for service. And resting from him his axe, he flung it on the ground. The man stooped down a little to pick it up, and forthwith the king, raising with both hands his own battle-axe, drove it into his skull, saying, Thus didst thou to the vase of Soissons, on the death of this fellow he bade the rest be gone, and by this act made himself greatly feared. A bold and unexpected deed has always a great effect on men. With his Frankish warriors, as well as with his Roman and Gothic foes, Clovis had at command the instincts of patience and brutality in turn. He could bear a mortification and take vengeance in due season. Whilst prosecuting his course of plunder and war in eastern Belgica, on the banks of the Meuse, Clovis was inspired with a wish to get married. He had heard tell of a young girl, like himself of the Germanic royal line, Clotilde, niece of Gonobod, at that time king of the Burgundians. She was dubbed beautiful, wise, and well-informed, but her situation was melancholy and perilous. Ambition and fraternal hatred had devastated her family. Her father, Chilperic, and her two brothers had been put to death by her uncle, Gondobod, who had caused her mother, Agrippina, to be thrown into the Rhone, with a stone round her neck, and drowned. Two sisters alone had survived this slaughter. The elder, Crona, had taken religious vows. The other, Clotilde, was living almost in exile at Geneva, absorbed in works of piety and charity. The principal historian of this epoch, Gregory of Tours, an almost contemporary authority, for he was elected bishop sixty-two years after the death of Clovis, says simply, Clovis at once sent a deputation to Gondobad to ask Clotilde in marriage. Gondobad, not daring to refuse, put her into the hands of the envoys, who took her promptly to the king. Clovis, at sight of her, was transported with joy, and married her. But to this short account other chroniclers, amongst them Fredegaire, who wrote a commentary upon and a continuation of Gregory of Tours's work, 
added details which deserve reproduction, first as a picture of manners, next for the better understanding of history. As he was not allowed to see Clotilde, says Fredegaire, Clovis charged a certain Roman, named Aurelian, to use all his wit to come nigh to her. Aurelian repaired alone to the spot, clothed in rags and with his wallet upon his back, like a mendicant. To ensure confidence in himself, he took with him the ring of Clovis. On his arrival at Geneva, Clotilde received him as a pilgrim charitably, and whilst she was washing his feet, Aurelian, bending towards her, said under his breath, Lady, I have great matters to announce to thee, if thou deign to permit me secret revelation. She, consenting, replied, Say on. Clovis, king of the Franks, said he, hath sent me to thee. If it be the will of God, he would fain raise thee to his high rank by marriage, and that thou mayest be certified thereof, he sendeth thee this ring. She accepted the ring with great joy, and said to Aurelian, Take for recompense of thy pains these hundred sous in gold, and this ring of mine. Return promptly to thy lord. If he would fain unite me to him by marriage, let him send without delay messengers to demand me of my uncle Gundabad, and let the messengers who shall come to take me away in haste, so soon as they shall have obtained permission, if they haste not, I fear lest a certain sage, one Aridius, may return from Constantinople, and if he arrive beforehand, all this matter will by his counsel come to naught. Aurelian returned in the same disguise under which he had come. On approaching the territory of Orléans, and at no great distance from his house, he had taken as travelling companion a certain poor mendicant, by whom he, having fallen asleep from sheer fatigue, and thinking himself safe, was robbed of his wallet and the hundred sous in gold that it contained. On awakening, Aurelian was sorely vexed, ran swiftly home, and sent his servants in all directions in search of the mendicant who had stolen his wallet. He was found and brought to Aurelian, who, after drubbing him soundly for three days, let him go his way. He afterwards told Clovis all that had passed and what Clotilde suggested. Clovis, pleased with his success and with Clotilde's notion, at once sent a deputation to Gondibad to demand his niece in marriage. Gondibad, not daring to refuse, and flattered at the idea of making a friend of Clovis, promised to give her to him. Then the deputation, having offered the dernier and the sou, according to the custom of the Franks, espoused Clotilde in the name of Clovis, and demanded that she be given up to them to be married. Without any delay the council was assembled at Chalons, and preparations made for the nuptials. The Franks, having arrived with all speed, received her from the hands of Gondibad, put her into a covered carriage, and escorted her to Clovis, together with much treasure. She, however, having already learned that Aridius was on his way back, said to the Frankish lords, if ye would take me into the presence of your lord, let me descend from this carriage, mount me on horseback, and get you hence as fast as ye may, for never in this carriage shall I reach the presence of your lord. Aridius, in fact, returned very speedily from Marseilles, and Gondibad, on seeing him, said to him, Thou knowest that we have made friends with the Franks, and that I have given my niece to Clovis to wife. This, answered Aridius, is no bond of friendship, but the beginning of perpetual strife, Thou should have remembered, my lord, that thou didst slay Clotilde's father, thy brother Chilperic, that thou didst drown her mother, and that thou didst cut off her brother's heads and cast their bodies into a well. If Clotilde become powerful, she will avenge the wrongs of her relatives. Send forthwith a troop in chase, and have her brought back to thee. It will be easier for thee to bear the wrath of one person than to be perpetually at strife, 
thyself and thine, with all the Franks. And Gundabad did send forthwith a troop in chase to fetch back Clotilde with the carriage and all the treasure, but she, on approaching Villiers, where Clovis was waiting for her, in the territory of Troyes, and before passing the Burgundian frontier, urged them who escorted her to disperse right and left over a space of twelve leagues in the country whence she was departing, to plunder and burn, and that having been done with the permission of Clovis, she cried aloud, I thank thee, God omnipotent, for that I see the commencement of vengeance for my parents and my brethren. End of chapter 7, part 1